Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today, for only the second time in American history, a former president appeared in court as a criminal defendant. Now, the first time was last month when Donald Trump was arraigned on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the Manhattan district attorney's case against him. And now today, Mr. Trump appeared in that courtroom again, virtually by video conference from Mar-a-Lago. The reason for this hearing was that the judge in this case needed to explain to former President Trump why he is not allowed to post any of the evidence from this case on social media, which seems like it was probably quite necessary because Donald Trump has a real tendency to post about his various legal entanglements. This weekend, for example, the former president went on a truth social tirade. The radical left Democrats will step up their fake investigations on me because they can they can they now see they can't win at the ballot box. Trump hating special prosecutor Jack Smith, whose family and friends are big time haters, also will be working overtime on this treasonous quest. Mr. Trump tends to do that kind of frenzied posting when he knows the stakes are getting higher. And this week there is a ton of new reporting suggesting that when it comes to special counsel Jack Smith, the stakes are indeed about to get a lot higher. For starters, we got a whole new host of reporting about how the special prosecutor is now in possession of detailed notes taken by Trump's former lawyer, Evan Corcoran, notes that describe exactly what was happening down at Mar-a-Lago, while Trump was apparently refusing to turn over classified documents to the FBI. They are very detailed, these notes taken by Mr. Evan Corcoran, and they tell us a lot about one key figure in Donald Trump's orbit. This man, his name is Walt Nauta, and he is Trump's longtime aide. He's his body man in White House parlance. Now, prosecutors have been circling Mr. Nauta for some time, ever since it was discovered that Trump told Nauta to move boxes of classified information out of his storage room, both before and after the FBI issued its subpoena for those classified documents. At this point, Walt Nauta is no longer cooperating with DOJ prosecutors. He reportedly gave them some conflicting narratives in separate interviews about what went down as it pertained to the moving of those boxes. And after prosecutors threatened to charge with Mr. Nauta with a crime— he ceased communication with the special counsel's team. But Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, the one who took all those notes, he is cooperating. He has to. He's been ordered to by a federal judge. And the detailed journals Mr. Corcoran just handed over to special counsel Jack Smith, those journals tell a very interesting story about Walt Nauda and his role in all of this. This is from The Guardian about what happened after the DOJ first subpoenaed all those missing classified documents. Quote, the notes described how Corcoran told Nauda about the subpoena before he started looking for classified documents because Corcoran needed Nauda to unlock the storage room. Corcoran then described how Nauda had offered to help him go through those boxes, which Corcoran declined and told Nauda he should stay outside. 
But going through around 60 boxes in the storage room took longer than expected, and the search ended up lasting several days. The notes, again, Evan Corcoran's notes. They also suggested to prosecutors that there were times when the storage room might have been left unattended. While the search for the classified documents was ongoing, such as when Mr. Corcoran needed to take a break and walked out to the pool area nearby. Okay, so consider all of this information for a minute. Trump's lawyer asks Trump's body man to unlock the storage room. Hey, Walt, can you do you have the key for this room? Trump's body man then asks the lawyer if he needs help. Hey, Evan, do you need any help? And Corcoran says, uh, no, thank you, Walt. And can you also please stay outside? But Trump's lawyer then leaves the storage room unlocked and walks away. And this is where the record of what happened gets a little fuzzy. The special counsel has subpoenaed security footage from Mar-a-Lago from around the time of the search. But there are reportedly gaps in that security footage. Now, prosecutors have been asking witnesses questions about those gaps, and we know from previous reporting that Mr. Walt Nauda is at the center of those questions about the security footage gaps. He's at the center of those questions, too. After the FBI requested the security footage from Mar-a-Lago, Mr. Nauda reportedly reached out to Trump's head of security, texting the security guys to, hey, call him. Why did Walt Nauda need to talk to Trump's security team? about what was on those tapes? And does it have anything to do with why there are gaps on that security footage? That is one of the many things we still do not know. But the special counsel's investigators, they just might. Because they have talked to almost everybody involved in this whole thing. They have talked to maids and staff at Mar-a-Lago. They have talked to high-level officials. They have obtained the cooperation of an insider witness. And they have subpoenaed a ton of documents. In just the past 24 hours, the New York Times and the Washington Post both report that the special counsel has subpoenaed records from Trump's businesses going back as far as 2017 as part of that same Mar-a-Lago investigation. And now the special counsel's investigators appear to be ready to reach a conclusion. The Wall Street Journal reports today that Jack Smith is wrapping up the Mar-a-Lago investigation which means we could, we could know any day now whether the former president of the United States will face yet another criminal indictment. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, reporter covering the FBI and the DOJ for The Washington Post. Also with us is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Devlin and Joyce, thanks for being here. Devlin, let me first just start with you and in terms of your reporting and the reporting that is out there Does this timeline surprise you that the special counsel may, in fact, be wrapping up? So I think wrapping up is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) It is certainly true that there are a lot of indicators showing that they have done, let's call it a majority of the investigative work here. But I, I, I feel like we also have to caution folks. Prosecutors have a habit of doing what Bob Mueller used to call playing with their food. And I don't think you should assume just because a lot of the grand jury work has been done that the prosecutors themselves are ready to move to the next step. We see, to be honest, in a lot of federal investigations, we see time and time again how the decision-making process can actually get bogged down. And that's a big question right now, I think, in terms of this special counsel. 
Um, I like that metaphor, <laughs> disturbing though it may be to some. Joyce, um, Devlin's suggestion that prosecutors sometimes play with their food. Do you think the other special counsel probes that are looking into documents retained at, for example, President Biden's office, that that is fa- might factor into the timeline in terms of potential charging decisions in the special counsel's probe of Mar-a-Lago? I suppose it's possible, Alex, that somebody has made a decision that it would be easier, that it would help the public understand if they're announced together. But I think in terms of evaluating the case against Trump, that's just not on Jack Smith's mind. He's looking at his evidence, and I think Devlin is very accurate when he says prosecutors like to play with their food. We definitely do. And after you're done playing with it in the grand jury, then the appellate lawyers want to come along and take a look at what the food that you've got on your plate and figure out if it's enough to pass some of the legal benchmarks that they're looking for. For instance, do you have enough evidence both to obtain and to sustain a conviction? So sometimes we see a little bit um, more legal work going on in the background. I think it's relatively rare for prosecutors to consider these sort of extraneous factors like other investigations that may be underway. Um, setting aside the timeline, which, of course, is a mystery to all of everybody except for Jack Smith, probably. Devlin, the strength of the case here, the evidence that we're learning about, the, the fact that Evan Corcoran was a copious note taker. I mean, down to the reporting in The Guardian says, in addition to his exchange with Trump, Corcoran described Trump's facial expressions and reactions whenever they discussed the subpoena. The unusually detailed nature of his notes is said to have irritated Trump, who only learned about them after the notes themselves were subpoenaed. This is a what sounds like a treasure trove of information, especially since Mr. Nauda isn't cooperating. Um, I wonder how and what what your questions would be for Evan Corcoran if you had access to these notes. I mean, what what would what sort of passages here would be of most interest to you? So I think Corcoran's account is important, not so much as as a direct or intended witness against the former president. But I think Corcoran's notes are very important for one basic question that has hovered over this case the entire time, which is, did the former president himself, not anyone around him, but the former president himself, did the former president himself lie to people around him about what he had uh, even after the subpoena was issued? That is really the crux of this case. And were those lies knowingly or unknowingly conveyed to the government? That is the whole core of this case. So I don't think Evan Corcoran is a willing or even necessarily particularly fulsome witness for the government. But I think those notes and and the broader picture of what Corcoran says he was told is important to understand the president's own words and actions. Yeah, I, I would say, and Joyce, I wonder how you read this, the very fact that Trump's lawyer, who, by the way, is still working for Trump, the fact that he's taking these notes in the first place suggests to me and other people uh, that this is someone who maybe knew the kind of client he was dealing with, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like common practice for a lawyer to be jotting down notes about what his his client's facial expression was when they talked about the subpoena. I mean, that seems out of the ordinary, at least to me. Does it to you? It really does. It's much more the stock and trade of a prosecutor, which Evan Corcoran once was um, in the District of Columbia. It's what you do when you're interviewing a witness and you're trying to figure out if they're credible and what kind of information they might have. And it reminds me very much of the point in the Mueller investigation where Trump is 
Uh, we're told in the report that Trump learned that his White House counsel, Don McGahn, took copious notes. And Trump expressed alarm and said that he'd never had a lawyer who took notes and he didn't understand why that was happening. That suggests to me that the former president is not someone who likes to have people taking a, a written record of his conduct. And the fact that Corcoran has it here is important. It does suggest he had a certain um, healthy amount of concern about himself. But Alex, what's so remarkable here is that we've seen instance after instance where some of the best witnesses against the former president are his own lawyers. It is such an uncommon occurrence to see the attorney-client privilege pierced by the crime fraud exception. But I think it's just become dinner table talk in America. We're all you know, conversant with this notion that when a, a client uses a lawyer, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It can literal be, literally be the client asking the lawyer for advice that they can then use to admit a crime that the relationship no longer blocks that evidence from scrutiny by prosecutors. And that's what's happened here. Right. And to that point, to elaborate on what you were saying earlier, Devlin, the the this can show what Andrew Weissman referred to as the mens rea, his intent in all of this, which, seem, which seems to be the key, right? The piercing of the attorney-client privilege reveals the cooperation or lack thereof between the client and his lawyer. The fact that Trump may have obfuscated or downright outright lied to Evan Corcoran. And presumably there are other lawyers in the mix who told Trump, this is what you need to do. This is why you need to return these documents. This is how the declassification process works. I mean, there's probably not just one lawyer here that can attest to the Trump's state of mind as it concerned the document, giving the documents back to the DOJ. Right. And that gets to a really important factual point in this case that it's important to remember, particularly with Evan Corcoran. Evan Corcoran is brought into this late after other lawyers have talked to Trump about this. So Evan Corcoran, in a way, comes into this cold and has to get a lot of his information from the former president. That puts Evan Corcoran sort of at the mercy of Trump's version of events when he's brought in late. And I think that is part of the reason why his notes are so important and part of the reason why what Evan Corcoran is told may be significantly different than the facts because he is new to the issue. Yeah, I, there's another piece of this that I think is important, if not specifically legally, but for the narrative, which is why did Trump want to hold on to these documents? And Devlin, you had a piece that I found seminal. It's like bookmarked on my browser about the, the, Trump's sort of motivation for all of this, which sounds like it was vanity. And yet we ha you have some new reporting um, and The Times has some reporting about the DOJ subpoenaing financial records from the Trump organization, specifically as it pertained to business deals that he made since 2017. Can you talk a little bit about those business deals and how they may dovetail with the Mar or how they do dovetail with the Mar-a-Lago investigation? Right. So the subpoena that went out in April asked for information on essentially two types of things. One, what foreign nation business deals did the Trump organization make from 2017 on? Now, Trump and his aides have long said they made no such deals while he was the president. But they did make such a deal in Oman after he stopped being the president. So what various folks have said to me is, look, if you are going to look at this topic, it's fine. But to, to a lot of people who have dealt with this, it seems to be more of a box checking exercise to make sure they aren't missing anything. Is there some lurking financial motive to these things? Um, 
and that's, a, I think, an understandable thing for prosecutors to look at. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a smoking gun there or even a gun at all. Uh, uh, I got to ask you, Joyce, there is the legal sort of narrative or the narrative as it pertains to legal exposure. And then there is the narrative in terms of how guilty this makes Trump in the court of public opinion. The motivation part, I think a lot of Americans are asking, why? Why do all of this? And the information that we have so far suggests it may not have been more than ego. And I wonder if you think that matters in terms of this broader investigation, that it might not have been to do a deal with some foreign government or, you know, sell classified documents for personal financial gain. So motive is rarely an element in a criminal case. Often it's enough to prove, um, Alex, what Andrew calls mens rea, state of mind, and then the actions, the actus reus of the crime. And, and those two things and perhaps some additional circumstances here when we're thinking about classified material, it's the fact that these are NDI documents that they are, um, that they pertain to national interests. And so that's enough to convict in a courtroom. And prosecutors are very skilled at explaining to a jury the absence of evidence of a motive and why they don't have to prove it. Although juries are human and they love to hear about motive, sometimes that can help to bring a case home. But when we get into the court of public opinion, you know, we have this notion that there are some things that are just awful. They may not be unlawful, but they are awful. And they are the sorts of conduct that should bar someone from holding office. Five years ago, I might have thought that committing a sexual assault would be one of those. Apparently, that's not the case anymore. And something that we'll look for very carefully as this investigation begins to wind down is whether some of the conduct, even if it doesn't end up being charged, is the kind of conduct that will convince and that will sway public opinion and say, here's someone who was so cavalier about handling the nation's secrets that he's simply unsuited for office. Five years ago, I didn't think a lot of things would be okay that apparently are okay right now, but <clears throat> it's a brave new world. Devlin Barrett, the great Joy Vance, thank you both for your time this evening. I really appreciate it. When we come back, on the eve of his long-expected presidential campaign announcement, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is working on his likability issue. But how he is expected to make his presidential campaign announcement may not help him all that much. That's next. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington, we'll take Ike to Washington. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. Vote for Eisenhower. That campaign ad 
was the first of its kind in 1952, not just for the jingle, but because the 1952 presidential race was the first to make use of television as a campaign platform. World War II had ended seven years earlier, and Dwight Eisenhower, a famous wartime general, he was on the ballot. There was no question about Eisenhower's likability. A 1952 Gallup poll determined that General Eisenhower was the most admired man in the U.S. that year. And so his campaign created a little jingle reminding everyone that they liked Ike. Since then, likability has been sort of omnipresent and also elusive. All candidates apparently need to have it, but some of them apparently don't. Barack Obama was considered likable in 2008, which led to this. He's very likable. I, I, I agree with that. I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likable no. enough. Thank Hillary. you. And today there is one person in particular whose ability to be likable enough is really sort of in question. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In 2018, during debate prep for his first run for governor, DeSantis had to be reminded to be likable. I think when you walk up there, if you have a pad, you have to write in all caps at the top of the pad, likable. And just look, I, I do the same thing because I have the same personality. We're both aggressive. Ever since then, the Republican governor has been trying to get people to like him, to find him likable. And while he has not yet announced his White House bid, Mr. DeSantis has already made a few preemptive visits to early campaign states in a sort of choreographed attempt at being likable. According to the New York Times, DeSantis and his team had internal conversations acknowledging the need for him to engage in the basics of political courtship, small talk, handshaking, eye contact. And it certainly seems like the governor is trying. Here he is laughing or something while meeting with supporters in Iowa a few weeks ago. But does that, whatever that is, does that make him seem likable or human for that matter? This is, after all, the individual who reportedly used his fingers to eat chocolate pudding, who failed to learn the names of his own staffers, who asked the leader of the Florida Republican Party to fire a recent cancer survivor just a week after that person returned from surgery. But whether or not voters can look past the pudding fingers and the terrifying laughter, the thing that has made people question whether Governor Ron DeSantis is truly likable is what he has done to his own state. Last fall, DeSantis, if you recall, rounded up 50 asylum seekers and sent them to Martha's Vineyard. Some said they were misled about their final destination and had expected to land elsewhere. Last year, he signed Don't Say Gay into law, which, in addition to marginalizing LGBTQ people, set off a massive feud with his state's largest employer, Disney. There is Stop Woke, the governor's assault on history lessons about race in K-12 classrooms, paired with his conservative takeover of the state's university system. All of that and more prompted the NAACP this week to issue a, issue a travel advisory warning that the state of Florida has become openly hostile toward African-Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals. According to NAACP President Derek Johnson, black lives are not valued in the state of Florida. And now Governor DeSantis wants to make America Florida. Literally, that is a chapter in his book. And so he is expected to announce a run for the White House tomorrow with help from Elon Musk, whose likability is in the eye of the beholder. That is probably being generous. 
Three sources tell NBC News that the announcement will happen tomorrow night in a conversation on Twitter, which, of course, is the company Musk purchased last fall for $44 billion. And since that time, Musk has retweeted conspiracy theories and replatformed self-described neo-Nazis and created a public square for bigotry. Along with a surge in hate speech on Twitter since Musk took over, the country has also observed a spike in white nationalist activity and violence. And this week, some of that activity might have made its way to Washington. That's next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Late last night, a man from Missouri reportedly rammed a U-Haul truck into barriers near the White House. The suspect is 19 years old. And the Secret Service says he told them he wanted to get to the White House to, quote, seize power and be put in charge of the nation. He said he would kill the president if he had to and would hurt anyone who stood in his way. Park police say that after the vehicle stopped, the driver got out and took this flag out of his backpack, a flag emblazoned with a swastika. When investigators asked him about the flag, the man said he bought it because, quote, Nazis have a great history. He told investigators he admired the Nazis' authoritarian nature, eugenics, and their one world order. And he said he looked up to Hitler because he was a strong leader. Now, we still do not know what this man intended to do with that Nazi flag. But boy, are we seeing a lot more Nazi stuff around the country these days. Earlier this year, Ohio education officials uncovered Nazi-approved homeschooling lesson plans that were created and shared online by white supremacists. In March, we saw swastikas in the hands of neo-Nazis who were storming a drag queen storytelling event in a park in Ohio. And earlier this month, we saw a swastika and other symbols of hate tattooed on the body of the gunman who opened fire in a mall in Texas and killed eight people. Joining us now is Kathleen Ballou, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University and author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Professor Ballou, thanks for being here tonight. And I'll just get right to it. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are familiar with the the sort of phrases of white supremacy that we have heard in greater degree over the course of the last several years. But Nazism seems like another level up in terms of distressing, disturbing developments in American culture. Do you, is this, has this been building for a while or do you see this as a precipitous increase in the, the, the sort of 
the waving of the of the Nazi flag, the 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 emblazoning of of the swastika on body parts and elsewhere. Is this is this has been a, is this a gradual increase or has this been building for some time or is this all of a sudden that we're we're seeing all of this? I think it's all of those things. So. First of all, neo-Nazi symbolism and the swastika, the sort of regalia of the Nazi regime, has been very popular in the militant right since at least the late 1970s, early 1980s, which is when um, neo-Nazis, Klansmen, radical tax resistors, posse comitatus members, and a number of other uh, previously disparate groups joined together in what they called the white power movement. From the 1980s forward, that movement used those symbols alongside things like the Klan robe and hood, burning crosses, and other kind of familiar white supremacist trappings, all for the same purpose, which was to recruit and radicalize and to wage a war on the federal government. This culminated in that period in the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and has reappeared in our current moment um, in all of the ways that we've become very familiar with, uh, beginning with the perhaps with the Unite the Right rally in 2017 and on through to January 6th. It's all the same movement. What is different in this current moment is how emboldened these activists are, not only to enter our politics, to enter the public sphere, but to do so bearing the symbols of hatred that had for a long time been anathema to everything we think of as part of America and its democratic system of governance. When you talk about, you know, how they are emboldened, I wonder if you think the sort of normalization of white nationalism, especially on the part of Republicans, whether that has done its share of making Nazis feel like there is a place for them. And I'm thinking of people like Senator Tommy Tuberville, who was asked about white nationalists and whether they should be in the, in, involved in the military. And he said, well, they call them that, as in white nationalists. I call them Americans. Is that the kind of stuff normalizing mainstreaming white supremacy by a sitting U.S. senator that further emboldens Nazis to come out and play? Yes, absolutely. And another good example just in the last few weeks is um, Paul Gosar's, uh, the revelation that Paul Gosar employs on his staff, someone who has contributed to, um, I should say, allegedly has contributed to um, Nick Fuentes and other white power activists, has um, posted in white power websites. Um, now, all of this is made somewhat more complicated because this is a opportunistic movement that is constantly seeking ways to expand and reinvent itself. So we've just come through um, the story of the Allen, Texas shooting with the Latino neo-Nazi gunman. Um, and now we seem to have in this White House event a South Indian person who has identified with parts of this movement and with the neo-Nazi flag. This sort of expanding access to these symbols is one of the things that's different in this present movement. Um, but again, history gives us some parables to work with here. Um, for instance, the inclusion of skinhead activists in the late 1980s, which also was for the people in the white power movement then a very, very different kind of cultural presentation, but was deemed necessary because of what they saw as a state of emergency that required everyone to sort of mobilize and use whatever army they could find. Um, at bottom, the people in this movement are much less concerned about distinctions 
um, between Klan and neo-Nazi, between neo-Nazi and, say, um, the other groups, and much more concerned about the looming common enemy, which is the federal government, people of color, and the idea that the white race or the white culture or the white nation might be extinguished. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point to make because uh, defenders of white nationalism have said the fact that a person of color was uh, allegedly uh, or is allegedly the suspect in all of this sort of makes it it's impossible that it can be white nationalism if there's a person of color behind the act. And what you're saying is that is patently untrue, that people of color can also be white nationalists because it's an embrace of the broader agenda of white supremacy and white nationalism. And as, as, confu- as confounding as that may be, that apparently is something that seems to be happening right now in America. Yes. And it's mobilizing in a number of different complex ways. Um, one is that within the Latino community, there are a lot of definitions at work about what is whiteness. Um, our idea of whiteness in the United States is not the only one. Um, and in many, many, um, countries in Central and South America, there is a different sort of schema based on, um, population of enslaved people, formerly enslaved people on Indian population and on Spanish population. And that's the racial hierarchy. Um, this this case of a South Indian person being involved is interesting because there is also a quite old strain in this movement of thinking about Aryanness, which is a category that in the United States has to do with having white skin, but in India has an entirely different history and significance. So part of what we're seeing here is the global um uh, traffic of these ideas coming home to roost. And part of what we're seeing is that that fundamental opportunism in which the people who are driving the recruitment and radicalization in this movement, who are driving the violent action, are much less concerned with what I suspect they might see as temporary alliances than they are with sort of the, the long-range strategic game plan, which will be either um, you know, the, the, the historical record, which points us towards mass casualty attacks, opportunistic attacks on communities of color, infrastructure attacks, or this new open road into our political system, which points us towards things like, um, intimidation of election officials and attempts to, um, jeopardize voting returns. Um, both of these are threats. Um, and both of these require our full attention. Absolutely. Kathleen Ballou, thank you as always for your, your wisdom and expertise on this topic. Sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Alex. We have still more to come tonight. Texas lawmakers are increasingly trying to end the division between church and state. And there is a bill on tap tonight that could put religion in every public classroom in the state. That is next. This is a brand new children's book. Quote, if there is danger and it is safe to get away, we should run like rabbit instead of stay. If danger is near, do not fear. Hide like Pooh does until police appear. If we can't get away, we have to fight with all our might. Parents in the Dallas Independent School District in Texas found out this week that their kids, kids as young as pre-K, were sent home with this book. It is called Stay Safe, and it uses characters from Winnie the Pooh to teach Run, Hide, Fight, which is the guidance in the event of an active shooter. It teaches that to young children.
We talked to the publisher of this book today, and he told us he was thinking of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas last year that killed 19 fourth grade students and two teachers. The book's publisher said he just wanted to make a resource for parents who found themselves not knowing how to have this kind of conversation with children that young. And he told us that he is, quote, heartbroken, that we as a society have a need for something like this. Now, we are showing you this book today because tonight at midnight is incredibly significant in the state of Texas. First off, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Uvalde shooting. On top of that, tonight at midnight is the deadline for any new legislation of any kind to pass the Texas legislature until its next session. And if you did not know, the Texas legislature only meets every two years. The legislature can technically meet more than that if the governor calls for a special legislative session. But with the conservative Greg Abbott in the governor's mansion, that means after midnight tonight, only Republican priorities are going to see the light of day. Other than that, if bills are not passed by midnight tonight, then nothing will happen in the Texas state legislature until it meets again in January of 2025. I'm not misspeaking here. There will be no new legislation until the year 2025. And in the year since the Uvalde shooting, the big thing Uvalde parents pushed for was to raise the minimum age for buying semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. But the Republican-controlled legislature wouldn't even do that. So in a state where schools are now turning to Winnie the Pooh, to teach four-year-olds how to survive mass shootings with just hours left to pass anything for the next year and a half and hours until the anniversary of the deadliest school shooting in the past decade, what are Republicans in the state of Texas focused on? Well, yesterday, the Texas House passed a, a bill banning diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on college campuses and another bill regulating drag shows. Today, they passed one bill that gets rid of the county elections administrator in just one single county, Harris County, which is the largest, most diverse county in all of Texas. And they passed another bill that gives the Texas Secretary of State the ability to take over elections administration in any county where a complaint is filed. So that's basically any county Republicans want. Earlier this month, they passed a bill that would allow schools to employ chaplains who are religious figures, to essentially serve as school counselors. And in these final hours, we are watching to see if they will pass a bill requiring the Ten Commandments to be posted in every classroom in the state, including public school classrooms. Those last two measures are among a handful of bills that have passed at least one chamber of the Texas legislature and that are alarming people who believe that the church, church and state should remain separate here in America as they have been for much of the 20th century. One Texas state senator who sponsored several of those bills told the Washington Post, quote, there is absolutely no separation of God and government, and that's what these bills are about. That has been confused. It is not real. With just hours left for the Texas state legislature to pass anything, former public school teacher and current Democratic St Texas State Rep James Tallarico is going to join me, join me live coming up right here next. Stay tuned. I say this to you as a fellow Christian, Rep. Nobody, I know you're a, a devout Christian as, and so am I. 
This bill, to me, is not only unconstitutional, it's not only un-American, I think it is also deeply unchristian. That was Texas State Representative James Tallarico earlier this month as a committee was taking up a bill that would require public school classrooms to display the Ten Commandments. Representative Tallarico's arguments did not win over the majority of his Republican-led committee, and the bill was later voted out of that committee and into the full state house. And that is where it sits tonight. It is on the agenda for a full vote. But even if it does not pass or if the vote does not happen in time, the bill will effectively die. But even then, it is just one of an estimated 1,600 bills, 1,600 bills in state houses across this country that attempt to dismantle the separation between church and state. Joining me now is Representative Tallarico, a member of the Texas State House and a former public school teacher. Representative Tallarico, thank you very much for stepping away from house business uh, for our behalf. Just if you could, for people who have not been following this issue in your state, what are Republicans trying to do to public education in the state of Texas? Well, first, thank you for having me, Alex, and thank you for shining a national spotlight on what Texas Republicans are trying to do to our public school students. They're trying to indoctrinate. They're trying to impose their version of Christianity on 5.5 million Texas public school students. And it should be offensive to all of us, those of us who love the Constitution, those of us who love democracy, and particularly those of us who are Christians. You know, I, I'm the grandson of a Baptist preacher from South Texas. I attend the same church where I was baptized when I was four years old. And I find these bills deeply offensive to my faith. And so I, I think it's incumbent upon Christians to speak out that these bills are exclusionary, they are idolatrous, and they are diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, and this is coming on the eve of the Uvalde school shooting anniversary, which is tomorrow. A lot of parents would like to see legislative action on schools as it pertains to gun safety reform. But instead, Republicans are focused on dismantling the separation between church and state. I mean, I think to anybody who was alive in the 20th century, it is shocking that that is not only being talked about, but being acted on. Can you talk a little bit more about that opinion that this is a Christian nation that needs to return to its Christian roots and how that's been embraced by the right as their sort of new raison d'etre? You know, I, I completely agree that my colleagues who confess to be Christians should return to their Christian roots. And we are called as believers to see Christ in all things. That means we are called to see Christ in the students of color who thrive with diversity, equity, and inclusion at Texas universities. We are called to see Christ in the voters in Harris County who are trying to access their God-given rights at the ballot box. And we are called to see Christ in those 19 babies and those two teachers who were massacred in a classroom at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. The fact that we have not lifted a finger to prevent a tragedy like that from happening again should be offensive to everyone watching across the state of Texas. We desperately need people in public office who will fight for the students of this state and who will truly live out the values of their faith. Do you have any sense of whether the Ten Commandments bill is going to pass tonight? You know, I stepped off the floor to, to chat with you and your viewers and my colleagues as we speak are fighting tooth and nail on the floor of the Texas House to prevent that bill from coming up for a vote. Uh, I'm going to go join them as soon as I hop off this call. Um, and I hope that we can stop that bill from getting heard on the House floor at midnight tonight.
Texas State Representative James Tallarico. You go do the work you need to do. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time tonight. Good luck out there. Thank you for covering me. That is our show for tonight. See you again tomorrow. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.